0: Welcome to the Speckled Truth Podcast. This is the only show dedicated to the conservation of the trophy trout population from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast. Here, we go below the surface to discuss what happens when science and anglers work together for a cause. So gear up with the crew as they talk about all things big speckled trout. Get ready for the slimy, salty truth, better known as the Speckled Truth. Hey everyone, want to welcome you back to the Speckle Truth podcast, Captain Chris here, joined with another legend uh, here on the Texas coast, <laughs> making up for a little bit of a loss absence uh, in podcast. But I'm uh, here actually in what is this more like a workroom, Doc? It's but this a is...
1: shop, uh, beer drinking place. <laughs> yeah.
0: That voice you hear is uh, none other than Doctor David McKee, and uh, Doc McKee is is a legend certainly here on the Texas coast, and. Today, we want to talk about a couple of things, uh, particularly the hydrology uh, of our base systems here down in Texas and how they change over the course of time and maybe how that's impacted uh, trout and fisheries, Um, but then also talk about, and I'm sitting immersed in it, uh, just the tremendous amount of uh, tackle that he has, but it's not just tackle, it's tackle that kind of spans the course of decades, literally the last century, Mm -hmm. right, Doc? I mean, it's crazy and then yeah. he's um certainly got a, a ton of relationships with many of the legends here in the texas coast and so love to hear some of those stories but doc before we get too far into the conversation if you don't mind share a little bit about kind of who you are where you're from and and how you got into fishing
1: well i, I guess like a lot of us uh and like chris you know we grew up with a. A bb gun in one hand and a fishing rod in the other just giving mother nature holy hell trying to figure out how we could make a life a living doing what we enjoyed doing and for me it pretty much worked out that way i uh i kept going to college and college and college next thing i know they're they're calling me doctor and uh <laughs> i taught marine biology out at uh at the a uh, and corpus for over 30 years and uh Been retired about eight years, but grew up uh, with my grandparents. My grandfather was uh, an old Texas sheriff. We had uh, 22 bloodhounds in the backyard. We did training sessions uh, Mm -hmm. once a month where we'd pull a prisoner out of jail and make him run a couple of miles out in the country and climb a tree and then sick the dogs on him. It was all training. I might add that there wasn't ever one that escaped. (laughs) (laughs) Bloodhounds caught them all. So, uh, it was all about hunting and fishing. All my uncles and grandfather, they walked on water, man. They were just, I I just tear up thinking about how cool those people were and how fortunate I was to, to have all that experience and hell, I'm still doing it today. You know, I, I I just had a, had a great upbringing uh, all in South Texas Mm -hmm. and, uh, just, uh, just so glad to, to, uh have kept a lot of stuff that was very dear to me and still is very dear to me and and share a lot of that with as chris and i were talking earlier i said you know a lot of people just haven't seen this kind of stuff or yeah. don't don't know what you guys started out with casting baits you know and things like that so uh it's been a lot of fun putting together living the life i've lived and putting together all the stuff uh, that i've put together yeah now, you had kind of laid out, which is
0: really cool. I mean, actually, I took a picture of it, and it was really from uh, tackle. Actually, it's rods and reels, and obviously, we have a ton of lures, which I want to talk about that here in a sec, but it was the rods and reels, and that went back to what, the 1920s, Probably 1910s? the 1920s,
1: some of those so, rods. So
0: talk a little bit about like that evolution
1: yeah. of tackle. Well, back in the day, you you couldn't you couldn't buy a rod uh, that that you would uh, use as a casting rod you had to make it and uh, early rods up until of probably world war ii you had to make your rods and most of those rods were made out of uh, calcutta cane mm-hmm. which is just a a good form of bamboo mm-hmm. they have very little small hole in them they're very solid wood compared to bamboo And after that, uh, the uh, split bamboo came about, sometimes called the Tonkin cane, and those are six pieces mitered and glued together, Mm -hmm. and uh, that was a big advancement. Then after World War II, we got plastics and we got fiberglass, and uh, a number of companies uh, started making fiberglass rods, and the reels started getting better, and... uh, uh, kind of a funny story uh one of the uh, one of my heroes was plug and Shorty, uh commercial rod and reeler here mm-hmm. in corpus that uh carved lures at night and caught fish with them by day uh he uh said that uh if if he couldn't catch a hundred pounds of fish a day on his hand carved lures he ought to be going out and doing something else mm-hmm. it just, which kind of shows you a little bit of the character of that guy, but also how, how many fish there were to be caught on those old plugs that that were brown. I mean, the only thing you could do is maybe put a little Christmas glitter on there with some glue or your wife's fingernail polish or something like that to doctor them up, jazz them up a little bit. But other than that, and uh, I've, I've already forgot where I was going with that story, Chris. <laughs> well, no, we're talking about- so many things are going through my head right now no
0: yeah so we had you know you were you left off at the the six mitre with a six piece bamboo
1: and then we got the fiberglass and uh of course it just went went crazy from their own one one story i was telling chris a little earlier i pulled out a a graphite rod and i I told him the story i was fishing with some of the old timers and these guys would be they're all dead and they'd all be over a hundred now if they were alive we're fishing one day down here at ponish park uh, in the, uh, in the fall. And, uh, we hadn't done much that day, although it was a great, it was a 50-50, uh, hole down there. You'd, every other time you'd go, you'd, you'd mm-hmm. hit them big. Anyway, we, we loaded up a few fish we had and walked back up the bluff and there was a guy parked in a van up there. And, uh, he walked up to us and introduced himself as Gary Loomis. And we hadn't heard of Gary no, Loomis. I no, I mean, okay. Going? So, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he was selling his rod, his rod blanks. He did not even building rods yet. Rod blanks out of the back of his white van. And I bought one, and I showed Chris the rod in there. It's a 764 Loomis. Had no inscription or anything mm-hmm. on it. And at the time, you couldn't—Fuji had just started making a fiberglass reel seat, but they didn't make a trigger yeah, real seat yep. so I took one of my grandmother's spoons and bent it the handle of it and pop riveted it on, <laughs> onto that real seat and I've caught a lot of fish on that oh, old sure. rod but that's that was my uh meeting with the early early Gary Loomis yeah
0: and and so that that rod is paired with uh old Daiwa
1: I've got an old Daiwa uh what is SM SM2 which uh Never had good tight tolerances, and that's why it was such a good reel. It, you could go for a year without cleaning that damn thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, anyway, yeah, and then we moved on to Fenwick. That was a hot dog rod. If you had one of those and walked out on a pier somewhere, boy, people would stand back and say, that guy knows yeah. what he's doing. And I had a, a red reel, a Garcia yeah, 5000 5, on there. And then uh, it all kind of went to modern after that. I've got, you know, the old green Corrado that both of us still love. I've got three or four of those. And then I've got the old silver uh, Calcutta, and I I had a bunch of those things. A lot of my experience with fishing down here, because I'd fish the surf, I'd fish the piers, I lived on the jetties, uh, all kinds of, and uh, I started fishing uh, down the lagoon, and uh, that just uh, shallow water had never mm-hmm. been anything I'd done much of, and uh, just just had a blast doing that. Uh, ended up with a cabin down there uh, I've had for forty two or three years, something like that. But uh, just lots of good times, and uh, and uh, tackle has just gone nuts now in terms of what's new. You know, a, uh, oh, yeah. the last I had heard, is, you know, a five point six ounce reel was something. Oh. Just featherweight. Now they're even lighter than that. So I'm kinda out of the loop on it, but no well, so we got the evolution down. And that's crazy though,
0: right? I mean you go from a nineteen tens like literally hand carved like bamboo, you know, Calcutta handle. Handle, all that stuff, right? To now carbon fiber and and titanium and all that stuff, right? And and like you're saying, I mean, you can get rods and reel combos for less than six ounces, right? Um, just insane the evolution. now l- lines, right? So lines from like the 1910s what uh, talk to us a little bit about that evolution because that's really an under at least for me, maybe an under misunderstood um, evolution. So like did it go from nylon to monofilament to well we or gotta, was it vice versa? We gotta
1: back up. We gotta go way back. One of them is uh, that they started they call it Cuddy hunk. And Cuddy Hunk was a linen line, mm-hmm. and you didn't have pound t- pound test. They called it a twelve thread or a nine thread or whatever. It's kind of like modern day braid. It, well, it was linen, and it was you know an organic material, okay. not a synthetic. Got it. But uh, each, if you had a nine thread line, what that meant was there were nine threads there. Each thread was three three pound test. Okay. So a nine thread raw. Ro- uh, line was actually 27 pound test line was it big in diameter it was bigger than than uh, any than the cotton before that and then we went to of course the nylon lines Mm -hmm. ashway was a big big producer of that and then we went to dacron and Dacron dacron was a great line because it would not stretch and it would not rot and that just put nylon in the shade because nylon stretched like everything you mm-hmm. could spread a spool on a big fish with a nylon and uh, of course rot was always a problem and then about that time mono, mono came in in the 60s and uh, it was horrible at first it mm-hmm. was stiff it had lots of memory uh blah 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 and of course as you're mentioning now the the braid came in and I guess we couldn't count all the different braids on the market on yeah. both hands and both feet. Well, now there's like copolymers, braid, or a mono, uh, monofluoro,
0: true fluorocarbon, you know, all these various things. Is. And, and it's crazy just how much the industry's, you know, modified over the course of years. But, you know, that is the lineage, you know, in, in terms of something kind of hunter-gatherer to now something more modern, uh, certainly in and for those folks, maybe just getting into fishing, or shoot, even for me, who kind of grew up fishing, uh, 40 years old now, you know, but, but growing up and fishing in the late 80s, you know, as a young man, uh, just understanding that long before then, uh, that, that kind of history of,
1: of tackle and equipment. but now, There's been so much in your lifetime oh. that has changed. I mean, I'm talking about way back, but it, it's actually advanced much faster recently than it did back in my day yeah
0: absolutely and one of those was i remember i think it was maybe when braid was introduced to market and it was actually a spider wire that i remember it was the true yeah. first braid that was the first that came out to market and now you know there's like you said i mean every brand makes five different eight strand you know all, all these different mm-hmm. styles of braids uh and braid seems obviously to be a big thing lots of uh, lots of, um, sensitivity, zero stretch, you know, just obviously you get a lot of pound tests with very small diameters and and it allows you to cast further, etc., etc. So it, it's just insane to see. But I remember with that true first spider wire commercial of, of braid coming out and we were still using a 12 pound Andy, right? I mean, that was, mm. that was, to me, that was a ticket. Andy Backcountry was a color and uh 12 pound and, and that, you couldn't beat that. And so finally, as you start to adapt as an angler and try to gain a little bit of an edge, you start to kind of test some of these waters and see that some of these advancements in technology really do help. Uh, but it's it's insane.
1: We sure had to learn new knots when that braid came out. Yeah. Our old blood knots uh, <laughs> it slipped, didn't work It slipped. What happened there? <laughs> yeah. Right. So along
0: with the advancements in rods and reels and line, uh, walk me through kind of your lore room. Uh, and and so a lot of these brands that you have in here and, shadow boxes upon shadow boxes upon shadow boxes and lures and, and a lot of them have, and like I told you before, a lot of these lures tell stories, you know, all the teeth marks tell stories. Um, a lot of these are actually Texas brands or Corpus founded
1: brands. Uh, I've, I've really kind of focused over the last, uh, 40, 50 years on Corpus lures. There were about six companies, Chris, that, that uh, began had their beginnings in corpus several of them uh started out as commercial rod and reelers Mm -hmm. can you imagine that today to have to go out every day and catch enough fish to support your family right Uh, anyway uh they would sell their their hand carved lures on the seawall off a bicycle then uh they'd go catch fish that evening or that the, the next morning on their hand-carved lure. So we had six companies started out here, and uh there was Bingo and Plug and Shorty and uh, Hump. Actually, uh, we know it from El Campo, but it actually started in Corpus as a coastal lure company. We had another Pico, Padre Island Company. Uh, we had uh, Amtac, American Tackle. And I'm uh, probably forgetting. Did you say uh, Hoagie? Okay. We had, uh, Hoagie was up uh, Edna El Campo okay. area. Yeah, okay. But uh, we had, uh, 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 escapes me right now, but uh, we had six companies here that operate. Sportsman okay. uh, is another company that uh, was here. Anyway, what was really cool about that, and, and keep in mind that uh, until about 1960, you just, even though your daddy fished, he probably fished with live shrimp and cut mullet and cut squid and all that stuff. There are very few people throwing plugs in saltwater until some of these companies started going out and showing that you could catch fish on, uh, on lures. Mm-hmm. Doug English, uh, who started Bingo, uh, was very famous. He probably gave away more lures than he ever sold, and he sold a bunch. But he would go around in the wintertime, go around to the deep harbors like uh, Con Brown Harbor over Mm -hmm. in Ranges Pass where those trout were stacked up. And he would hand out his lures to people over there and say, I'm going to give you a handful of bingos here as long as every time you catch a fish, you yell bingo. Well, the word was that you could hear bingo <laughs> being yelled all over South yeah. Texas down here. That's a great marketing ploy. Right? So he and Mr. Hump, Mr. Humphreys or Earl Humphreys, uh, both of them had salesmen on the road out of Corpus Christi, all the way around all five Gulf states, around Florida, all the way up to North South Carolina, selling lures made here in Corpus. So in 1960, Corpus uh, put a lot of artif- what we do today, throwing artificials only—was uh, started right here in Corpus with a lot of this old tackle and uh, a lot of a lot of these old plugs. Yeah, so, and and so we were
0: talking about that too. So Texas, along with Florida, Florida, kind of leading the way, right? LNS Bay Company way. now Mirror. yeah, yeah. Uh, just kind of getting out there and 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 really, yeah, showing or as an artificial only guy, paving the way for now yeah. what we know as an industry mm-hmm. completely saturated with a gazillion different brands and companies. I mean, there's so many people now just making, you know, plastics in their garage, right? Mm-hmm. And selling yeah. them and, you know, all these various things. So that's kind of, it's cool to hear that because that's really the start of an industry. It sounds like, right? I mean, yeah. from marketing yeah. reps to... That that is literally the foundation of an industry.
1: It sounds yeah, like foundation, and the foundation of of us today throwing lures in saltwater yeah. was started because of some of these entrepreneurial types that you know carved their baits. They made a living uh, fishing with their lures, and then found out that they could actually sell those lures. <laughs> yeah, and uh, some of them went on to bigger and better things. Uh, D- Doug English who started Bingo he owned radio stations all in tech all across Texas he owned banana plantations down in uh, Panama hmm. a very much uh, a salesman and uh, created uh, a lot of the uh, lure fishing today i think can really be attributed back to Doug English mm-hmm. and what he did and what what do you know about you know and obviously i had him on the podcast
0: mr Paul Brown obviously in the infamous quirky mm-hmm. i mean I know that's not necessarily a corpus bait, but it's a Texas brand, right? Oh yeah,
1: yeah, oh yeah, and uh, he really, uh, you know, changed changed things. Mm-hmm. You know, from uh, you know the what had been hard-bodied baits, all of a sudden had something that uh, had a, a timed sink to it or would float, and uh, you could tune it. And uh, had a soft body, so it felt natural when something latched down on it. And and that's that's
0: the interesting part is like all the lures in your shadow boxes, all the bingos, all the humps, all these they're super cool and they have such uh, personality. You know what I'm saying? And, and some of them that you're showing me, I mean, they have three different line ties on the top of the bait. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the bingos are are, are actually. Yeah, some of the bingos are floaters yeah. and some of the yeah. sinkers and showing kind of the weight pl- placement, excuse me, under the chin and various things. And so this was, you know, thinking about it as an angler. Now we kind of adapt and use tempo with rods, reels, and, mm-hmm. and count down the bait um, on a single line tie. This you can modify your approach, not by changing the actual bait itself, but changing where your knot placement was on the bait to keep yeah. it up, to keep it down. Um, so very innovative,
1: very innovative. And the plugging shardy had wings on the side. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They worked, worked like a, as a hydrodynamics. Like a yeah. If you reeled it slow, it would kind of sink. But if you increased your, your crank speed, the bait would rise up in the water like an airplane does. Is uh, So, you know, some of these things that I'm, I'm kind of surprised some of these have not been uh, adopted by bait manufacturers today. There's some... There's a New Orleans bait in there I was showing yeah. Chris, and he said, that's my home. I never heard <laughs> of that company, Manning's Tasty Shrimp. The body is hollow. The head screws off. It's got It's ported along the sides with holes in it. It's made to put a piece of peeled shrimp or, or trout belly or something up inside of it, screw the head back on, so it's not only appearance, but it's got a smell Scent. to it. That's like the... the... It's like, the early stages of the, Berkeley Gulp, of right? The gulp, yeah. That's early, way, way early gulp. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And that's another bait that's really revolutionized fishing. Is the, you know, is the gulp? Yeah, biodegradables and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. It's pretty insane. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, like Z-Man Plastics and a lot of those, um, elast. What is it, Elastec or whatever it is? The yeah. Plastisol or whatever it is that yeah. allows that buoyancy. Oh, and, the, the technology it's, oh, it's and
1: chemistry is
0: just. Uh, Awesome. So, what, what, you obviously marine biology in Texas A&M Corpus mm-hmm. Christi, Christi, excuse me, Doc. But uh, so, you know, what did you teach? How
1: long did you teach? Uh, I taught over thirty years. Uh, right at thirty years, I taught ichthyology. That was study of fish. That was my field. That, so my minor's in uh, fisheries. Oh, it is. Oh, and I good. took an ichthyology Bro. class. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. Don't I, don't quiz me, Doc. So you had an ichthyology. <laughs> class. I did. Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah.
0: My, my final exam, admittedly, was uh, literally we had uh, a fish, uh, and it had all the different bones. It was a huge table, and it had all the different bones of a fish, and all we had was a, a chart, and we had to basically fill out all the names of the bones yeah, uh, as we saw them. Right, and so uh. that was uh, a brutal final. Admittedly, that was my last final of my college career. So I, I literally that was the last you final that well. Of, so I remember walking out of there like God. I hope I passed that. And I yeah. immediately went home, fell asleep because I'd studied all night, and then I think I went and had a f- couple beers with friends. And in the next like two weeks in a row, I went and fished down in Port Sulphur, stayed at our camp, and just absolutely uh, caught a bunch of fish with my dad uh, down did, in the. Did surf. you
1: ace your ichthyology test? I did not, sir. You did not. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> I passed. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> our uh, my ichthyology finals were on the saltwater portion were pretty brutal because if you knew your stuff really well you could get through the test in about two and a half hours if you really didn't know your stuff that well i once had somebody stay in there eight hours before they mm. finally just gave up and went out but anyway I t- yeah i taught grass. marine mammals i taught marine ecology uh, I taught thirteen different titles mm-hmm. while I was uh, a biology professor, but ichthyology was my favorite. I just uh, got a lot of fish heads in there. Yeah, uh, now, so, so guys spe- that are now guides. I was about to say, Speaking out, of that, yeah, yeah did you,
0: did you have any like yeah, notable? Jim
1: uh, James Sanchez was uh, yeah. one of my students. David Norris. Yeah. Uh, yeah, uh it, it it was a lot of fun it, finding somebody that was kind of like me. In college, and you're kind of like, well, I'm, I'm kind of going, but I really don't, you know. Okay, let me tell one on myself. Okay, I have a PhD in biology. You'll probably never meet, a PhD that flunked out of college. Really? I flunked out twice. <laughs> I mean, it was like babes and beer, and you. Okay, I learned real quick. You got to go to class. You, you know, don't, don't take eight o'clock classes. Number one don't you cannot rely on others notes it does not work and you know once i figured all that out i went straight a's but i i I really struggled right at first yes sir that's crazy
0: um yeah so james sanchez uh known from you know colton mitchell's a good friend of mine um him and chris elliott you know those guys fish around the corpus area Uh in gods now um but other other guides that you stay in fairly close contact
1: with? I know you said David Rousey is one yeah, of the Yeah, Rousey's a dear, dear friend of mine, uh Billy Standerfer, the, the beach guide. Uh oh golly, I just know a lot of guys. I, I, I really kind of think if I hadn't gone the academic route, I probably would have been a fishing guide. I mean it, it just it's still very dear to me. So but what was the thought
0: process. They're kind of like, I guess me in the military, like my, my passion is, is certainly, uh, with fishing and, and speckled trout fishing. But at the end of the day, I mean, I'm trying to take care of a family, try, trying to raise three boys and in the military is kind of one thing led to it. It's actually been the best decision I've ever made in my life, but it's kind of like an alter ego to some extent. You know what I'm saying? Like I wouldn't be in the military, I still don't feel like I'm in the military. I've served almost 17 years, and uh, but fishing is really—it's funny because I live two separate lives. Like yeah, people in the military yeah, have no idea to fish, and then a lot of people are like, "Oh, you fish?" I am sure you military? found the time to do both. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, just trying to navigate both, and
1: it's if it's a passion,
0: it'll it'll stick around, right? Yeah. And so,
1: well, I don't know. I, I I guess in a lot of what you know, I always told my students, I said, "There's three things you can do in life." And it's very simple. One of them is you probably all grew up around somebody in your life that hated what they did. And not only were they miserable, but they made everybody around them miserable. The other second one is, well, it's the old comment, well, I wish I'd done something else, but it's put food on the table for marrying the kids and blah, blah, blah. And then the third one is that guy or gal that jumps out of bed every morning and can't wait to go to work. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's available to all of you. It it kind of happened to me, but only because I had done a lot of really sucky jobs as a young man. And I knew I did not want to do those things. I worked on Gulf shrimp boats when I was uh, out of uh High school. I remember you telling that story. And please share it again. Did, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yep, 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 Go ahead oh, and tell us. Oh, it was, it yeah, was yeah. absolutely in, uh, nuts. Uh, a day after I graduated from high school, I went over to Con Brown Harbor. I wanted to work on a shrimp boat. And uh, finally, a, a boat agreed to take me on, and uh, I went out. And uh, it was supposed to be a five- to a seven-day trip, just working white shrimp out here off Padre Island. Well, that turned into a 31-day trip, and with people that I thought hated my guts. I mean, I I was so afraid at first that maybe if I did something wrong, they might throw me overboard. I mean, it was kind of spooky, but it was all testing, all Mm -hmm. testing. Well, in uh, that year, after on the thirty, you know, about twenty-seventh day out, I was ready to jump over the side of that shrimp boat and swim to shore. You know, and we were working white shrimp in the daytime up on the beach, and we worked the browns at night. And uh, anyway, a storm came in, and we had to go into Cameron, Louisiana. Oh yeah, and Cameron had been wiped out off the face of the earth in 1957. All they had built back was about five beer joints. Out of 10, there was no doors, no window screens, no nothing. And when we pulled in there, there were probably 75 boats in that little bitty harbor there. And uh, we, we tied up and we stayed there two days and just stayed drunk. <laughs> and uh, I was sitting in a bar. I, I was in love with a girl in college. I thought I was. And I called her, and I and it just I said I'm getting I'm not going back on that boat. Well, there was only one one bus a, a week that ran from Lake Charles to Cameron, and I'd missed it by a couple of days, so I couldn't go anywhere. I had to get back on the boat. So we were fixing to head back out, sitting in the bar, and there was a really really severely drunk old man, probably you know, now probably 50 years old, but at the time he seemed anxious, sitting next to me, and every time the bartender would walk by, he'd go, something like that. I finally heard what he was trying to do. He was trying to ask the bartender for a beer, and he couldn't get it out. He was so drunk. Wow. So when she walked by again, I said, ma'am, would you please get this man, this gentleman, a beer? And no sooner than I said that, that some of it cold cocked me and knocked me (laughs) back on the floor, he came alive. Well, I knew I was part of the crew on my boat, the Southern Pride at that time, because the captain and the rigger jumped in on the fight, and there was a hell of a brawl in there, and we won. (laughs) And before that, I thought these guys hated me. I thought they were going to throw me overboard. They were testing me the whole time. And I mean, that's one of the proudest moments of my life. When I realized I was accepted by these Gulf rivers, yeah. I went back home. We got, finally got out of there. And two weeks later, I was back on that damn boat again. No kidding. It, it, you know, yeah. anyway, I probably carried that on a little too long, but no, those stories, Cameron are, will remain in, in my memory forever. <laughs> a little soft spot what in a dive it was though at that time I wonder what Cameron looks like now well Hurricane Laura and, well yeah, it just continues to be sad platinum. I mean
0: yeah actually I went there after Hurricane Laura to help uh, some friends actually I went and saw Bruce and Paul I brought them mm-hmm. some gas and and uh help work a chainsaw for them a little bit and bring in some tarps and some water and and uh, man I tell you what that that place was just an absolute wreck and the sad reality is, you know, uh, helped a good friend of mine, Bradley Lanningham, and uh, his wife. They just literally spent the entire day pulling out great myrtles. I mean, they were just toppled mm-hmm. great myrtles, ton of it. Saw snakes, and just putting them on the side of the street. And uh, you know what's crazy though is, like, uh, we we stopped actually as a good friend of mine, Connor Snogan. We we actually ended up getting a lot of donations, and we just put it in the back of this like little little trailer, a little covered trailer. And we brought them down there, a ton of water, you know, it's a diapers, believe it or not, Cool, uh, all sorts of stuff. And, and here is two things. First off we stop and we couldn't go down the road to get to Paul and Bruce's. So we were going to have to detour in order to do that. We had to back out. And then, so as we're pulling out, uh, to back out, we, we pull in this lady's driveway. Well, she has a tarp over a roof. She comes out. Obviously there's no power. It's hot as heck. It's humid as all, you know, and so this older uh, lady, uh, I'll say, um, she gets out and she's like, hey, y'all coming to cut the tree. She's literally got a tree in her house um, and she's got a tarp over it and it's, it's forecasted the rain that evening. So she's trying to get, you know, the, that out. And so anyway, we're there and we're like, oh, no, ma'am, you know, but while we're here, do you need anything? She's like, uh, do you have any water? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So we, we gave her some water. We're like here, have a couple cases. She's like, no, I'm fine right now. You know, people need it more than me. And we're like, ma'am, you have a <laughs> you have a tree in your house. You know, what I'm saying. But it goes to like, I guess the the human compassion side of things. But then, yeah, the um, the second part was we were scheduled to deliver this stuff, and I'm not trying to virtue signal or anything like that. But you know, it's funny how um, the big man upstairs works sometimes. But nonetheless. Our big saying in Speckled Truth is take what you need and release the rest, right? So, we're driving through downtown Lake Charles to go deliver the rest of our uh, goods that were donated uh, to this uh, charity. And so, as we're going there, they're closed. We call them, we finally get in touch with them, like, hey, we can't accept the donation still tomorrow. We're like, we just, we're doing an out and back from San Antonio. And so, as we're driving through downtown Lake Charles, there's the little coffee shop. It's called Stellar Beans. They got like the whole uh, front side of their their company's blown out and all this stuff. There's bricks laying all in the in the street and stuff. And we were like, "Hey, do you need some donations?" She's like, "Yes, because we're gonna actually basically be a hub for anybody else who needs some donate needs some things in our community." I'm like, "Sweet, here, take it all." So we we help unload it and stuff like that. The next day, and I hadn't said anything like that. Uh, the sign that she puts on the, um, all the donations that we have is take what you need and release her or, or take what you need and leave the rest. Oh, I was yeah. like, Oh my God, you <laughs> like hit, what a message. hit, I know. Yeah. So anyway, talking about Cameron late yeah, and Lake Charles and, um, anyway, but they've been through a lot lately. This season, we'd like to recognize one of our newest sponsors and that is down South floor's. From their regular 4-inch Southern Shad to the 5-inch Supermodel and versatile 3-inch Burner Shads, it's easy to see why these baits have become a go-to for many Texas anglers. Designed with their unique hybrid tail, its natural swims-in-the-fall action produces big trout, not only here in the Texas coast, but across all estuaries. Aside from that, though, they're made right here in the USA. So be sure to support this Texas brand that supports you in pursuit of that next big bite. Real Sportswear humbly started making shirts for a few local fishermen. Rooted in simplicity and utility, Real's minimalist approach is a reflection of what binds the fishing industry together. Now found throughout many coastal retailers, their lineup of comfortable and functional gear aims to make your time in the water a success. So next time you're gearing up, wear what guides wear. And consider real sportswear mirror lore is an iconic inshore fishing and lure company found in every angler's arsenal from their legendary lineup of lures such as the top dog and catch 2000 to their versatile soft plastics like the little john and marsh Minnow. these lures not only catch fish but have produced for decades so whether it's a 17 mr or a paul brown cerise fat boy always remember to tie on a mirror Lore turn on the bike. Texas Custom Lures and the original Custom Corky have been podcast sponsors for the first two seasons and we're incredibly appreciative. This Texas brand with inputs from the most respectable guides across the Texas coast complete every big trout angler's arsenal. With great fish catching colors, my personal favorites, Texas Turnip, Bay Mistress, Plum Nasty to name a few, it's easy to see how these things produce time and time again so next time you're targeting that next big bite i highly encourage you to fish the original custom corky and remember the big girls aren't colorblind doc i want to talk about a little bit of the hydrology so talked to cliff webb recently and one of the things that he was mentioning in his uh, podcast that we did was really the change in the water quality and the water clarity and like the bathing complex and so the first time we met was at the Ananias Fishing Club with uh, Mike Blackwood and the crew. And one of the things that, you know, we were talking about was watershed uh, and how that's changed dramatically here in the Laguna Madre. So what is is that one of the biggest contributors to maybe a a, a downslope in terms of fishery and fishery production?
1: Well, that's, that's r- really tough to say. Uh, I, I'll tell you this. Uh, when when I started fishing the Laguna Madre between uh, Flower Bluff mm-hmm. and Baffin, you had so many sand spots that you could fish. And now you hardly see a sand spot. We've had an invasion of the Hallidule, the shoal grass. So our grasses mm-hmm. are much more uh, expansive, abundant, abundant okay. than yeah. they were, say, 40 years ago. Uh, water quality in general we've had so yeah we, we were talking about this earlier we've got 56,000 acres of cultivated land that drain into alazan bay which is an offshoot of, of baffin and of course that's all cultivated row crop and you know with that is fertilizer and pesticides and herbicides and so forth so uh i i It looks like that that may not be as big an impact because they're trying to get all those very expensive ag chemicals to the plant and not running off into Mm -hmm. the bay. They're deep injecting fertilizers now rather than casting them on the Mm -hmm. surface, uh, so forth. But I think a lot of the big problems in Baffin proper uh, are coming from these uh, errant uh, septic Fields, septic tanks, because there's so many people living around the edge of Baffin now. On in Rivera, you know, we have King Ranch yep. on the south side and Kennedy Ranch on on the, on the s- south, uh, south side. Right. The other King Ranch and on, the north on, on, the, on the north side. So that's all private. But just uh the uh, people that are around there are all operating off septic systems, and a lot of what they're showing showing uh in the water samples are the various bacteria that are associated so, with uh
0: and you think that's coming out with, of rivera
1: rivera loyola beach yeah uh, it's got to be that's, that's beach, the only place yeah. uh there are yeah, yeah san fernando creek mm-hmm. alizan creek harmacillo creek uh so the cayo and laguna kind of those arms yeah the, it- the uh laguna salada, salada on yeah. the south and the cayo de grillo on mm-hmm. the north and all those are fed by creeks and uh uh, evidently there's a lot of that uh, septic coming from upstream on those one of the interesting things i, I think uh, that uh, i've i've come across in in my time is uh the uh worm rocks in baffin where we're all they're hardly growing at all there's hardly any down there but they were very prolific about uh, anywhere from 1700 years ago to about 3500 years ago and the reason for that is it was much, much fresher. Baffin was a, a really a quite a freshwater really? body. And uh, that's why the worms were growing. We had oysters. Uh, we have uh, one of my uh, associates from the past, I went did a one-day trip with him. He had done his Ph.D. at SMU on the Caracola Indians. I made uh, two trips with him down to Baffin, to investigate some of these Karankawa habitat habitation sites. Mm-hmm. And uh, we didn't find any, but he said some of them are just loaded with oysters, hmm. some of those sites. There's no oysters uh, down there now, but uh, they're evidently were before, and they didn't trade or you know get Amazon to deliver yeah. oysters to them. Uh, <laughs> they were growing there. And uh, some of the worm rocks that are up around Loyola and Rivera – are uh, covered up. They're just a little bit of rock covering uh, above the surface of the bottom. Where around uh, the mouth of the bay, uh, badlands and so forth. Some of those rocks come out seven or eight feet above. There's at the number nine Rivera Channel rock uh, marker. There is a rock there, right by the uh, pole. That's that's probably eight feet tall, coming off the bottom. And it's not very big, probably four foot in diameter, Mm -hmm. but all those way back west up around Rivera are just barely above the bottom. I dug around some of them, and there's rock down there. It's just all the sediment from that freshwater covered up those rocks. So what we see down there now is nothing like what it used to be. A lot of odalis around those Indian campsites that – what was he saying? He had some analyzed, and they were the, the ear stones yep. out of the out of the golden croaker. Those croaker were between four and a half and five pounds. Unreal. And you know, a lot of things we don't have today. Yeah. Interesting story. We found one site that he said it's all the long bones of wading birds. In other words, the legs and and wings and things like that. Uh, this was in his dissertation work. It was done back in the sixties, and he said about two miles from there, you found nothing but breast bones. Hmm. He put the two together, and he said where the uh, where the long bones were. And this is a big area; it's like ten feet wide and thirty feet long, full of just solid bones. Crazy. And he said that those men and boys would probably. This is probably we don't know, but it makes sense to me would go up this slough at night and yank these egrets and herons and stuff off the nests, come out to the, the mouth of the slough and rip the breast off mm-hmm. and take that breast back to camp, which was two miles away. So all you found were the, long, the legs and the wings there <laughs> at one spot at the slough, and they took all the breast down to the other spot. Wow. Kind of cool. So- we found uh, some, some uh, clay pits where they would uh, roast uh, they would uh, the land snails after it rains. You know, those mm-hmm. snails climb up vegetation. We found one site down there that was like paved. It was almost like asphalt, but mm-hmm. it was all white from those snail shells that they had picked. And he said they would steam them in these cl- clay pots, which are just a hole in the ground with green leaves, and then they would bring them out, and with a thorn, they would pull the meat out of those snails the women were the gatherers and the and the men were the hunters so mm-hmm. the women were gathering all this stuff up but just um kind of looking at how it is now versus how it used to be whether we're talking about indians or rods and reels and lures it's it's very interesting to historically go back and and look at how we got here
0: yeah absolutely in in and how much yeah like you said i mean that could have been a freshwater complex yeah. Ice, what it is today right and and going back to my hometown of yeah, obviously new orleans metairie uh lake Pontchartrain used to be yeah. you know really uh, really a big freshwater pond it still kind of has now parts of that with the spillway but i mean at one point that was the mississippi river i mean that was the delta you know that's chandeliers formed and in, in various you know uh, bayou terra used to be the actual river itself now that's running through delacro and you know, Oak River, same situation. That delta has just jumped over the course of time. And that, that Pontchartrain used to be one of those big freshwater ponds. And out. now it's, you know, notably for, or known for, it's kind of bigger speckled trout. Now that they've dammed that off, the Mister uh, Mississippi River Gulf Outlet, intercoastal, if you will, there's less saltwater kind of influence into that, but, that lake, if you will. And now they've seen a decline in, in overall speckled trout population. Um, and so it's, it's really changed how much when that, when that Mississippi river Gulf Outlet was open, I mean, they were catching world-class fish state, you know, in top 10 state record, uh, speckled trout in, in that lake. Uh, and, and once they dammed it off, you know, it really has declined over the course of time. And so it just shows hydrology and in, in changing water dynamics. Yeah. Changes water clarity, changes salinity, et cetera, et cetera. It has a trickle effect, yeah. and to the point where, from the Indians to now, that's changed over the course of time, and as a result, that base system has changed.
1: And you know, there was uh, obviously, uh, uh, you know, climate change. We can we can say that, but it had nothing to do with man burning. Mm-hmm fossil fuels or anything things you know these weather cycles Uh, one of the the uh, things that I I think is really interesting about all this is uh, how we got to to where we are and uh, with uh, with our use of the water you Mm know our our boat use Uh, you know growing up uh, I don't know if y'all had a boat we we, 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 we didn't but I'm almost 75 years old so we go we go back but boy looking at how things have progressed since i was talking to billy holmes who owns a gulf coast marine a few years ago and he said you know it used to be duck once dove season started you didn't sell a damn boat until uh duck season was over and said now we sell as many boats in the middle of winter as we do in the summer and most of them are first-time boat owners and uh sure
0: covid didn't help that (laughs)
1: right yeah right yeah yeah, covid played a played a role in in worsening some of this in terms of boat sales and
0: well uh, increasing it but increasing
1: the use because i mean that's all we had i mean oh oh my gosh you know our our whole whole thing down at baffin at the cabin back in i was late getting to baffin i didn't get down there until either 69 or 70 i think And uh, but at that time, you knew every boat that went by. They they knew you were there because everybody flew a flag down there. Nobody, uh, you knew where they were going to fish. They knew where you were going to fish, and you'd get together and have one hell of a cocktail hour the next day uh, after everybody got through fishing. But you know, as far that's almost somebody can almost not believe that saying you knew every boat that went by. (laughs) Yeah, I knew him well. They were, you know, uh, <laughs> well, there just weren't that many.
0: Well, in your particular instance, right? I mean, Cliff shared it a little bit, I think, in his podcast. But his dad was a game warden, and you were his oh, biologist. Yeah. So yeah. You, I mean, Mr. you certainly yeah. were locked in. Oh there. yeah,
1: he was. Uh, he was a, a, a real famous, uh, hard hard on criminals uh, game warden down here, and I was a biologist with Texas Parks and Wildlife. So we both worked for the same people, but I was. Uh, biology and he was enforcement. But, oh yeah, Mr. Mr. Cliff was uh, was well known and uh, upheld the law. Uh-huh. Do, 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 do you recall any stories, any things that he shared
0: with you? No. Or?
1: See, I was actually, uh, I was stationed over at the Rockport Marine Lab and I, I I was involved in the Rancis Bay System and the Corpus Bay System. And then I moved over to the Laguna Madre and ran that station for about a year and a half and and mr webb was uh uh i don't remember seeing him any when i was over here i knew him better when i was in rockport Mm because the word spread you know he he (laughs) busted somebody you know somewhere and anyway uh about that time i decided i needed i didn't want to be a biologist forever with texas parks and wildlife and i was 34 years old. And I said, I'm going back to A&M and get a degree and teach college. That's what I always wanted to That's do. Cool. And it worked out that way. So
0: you obviously were around, obviously, in the in the glory days of, you know, the Baffin Complex and the Laguna Madre. I mean, what, it's, certainly being a biologist, I mean, what were some of the size of the trout? That well, you were seeing or did you see some yeah. abnormally large fish after the freezes? And- well, y- y-
1: yes and no. I, I was really surprised after the '83 freeze. I took the the very famous uh, Dr. Henry Hildebrand down with me about nine days after the '83 freeze. And by the way, that freeze stayed be- that that event stayed below freezing for six consecutive days. This front we had in February stayed that way for only three days, mm-hmm. so that attributed to a lot of, a lot of that. No, we went down and uh, saw a lot of a lot of fish until we got into the land cut, and it was a jaw dropper. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kept thinking, okay, I'm going to find that 40 incher. I would got to. I mean, every trout in, in in the bay was killed, and so many of them were in that Laguna Mod- in that land cut. I kicked over fish for probably a half mile, and I never found a fish over, I think the biggest one I had that I I measured, that's all we took was an Instamatic camera and a a measuring stick, I think was 33 and three quarters. But fish for three or four deep, you couldn't possibly look at all of them. But uh, following uh, some of the sizes of trout, Uh, From a biologist report in 1955, I think it was there had been a devastating 51 or 55. uh, Been a devastating freeze in the Laguna Madre, and the way they would write back in those days, it said it looked like uh, specks. The fish were so uh, so many fish floating on Baffin Bay. It looked like pepper on top of a fried egg you know Mm. that's the way they would anyway uh (laughs) very eloquent very eloquent yeah Yeah. so uh the biologist report like six months later after that freeze said that they they made a gill net set near the land cut we don't know where that would have been if it had been in the gutter or over at the summer house or where it was but near the land cut and in that one set they had three trout that weighed 15 pounds each, and that's actually in a state report. Uh, that can be now another another uh, after another freeze. They said that uh, they found two thirds of a trout that weighed 18 pounds oh by Point of Rocks, right uh-huh. near my cabin. That's where I am, and another trout that was 40, 48 inches. Are you serious? I went back, I said, okay, I don't know about this. I <laughs> went back to Ernest Simmons when I was with Parks and Wildlife and discovered that old report in the Rockport Library. I said, Ernest, this just almost doesn't sound right. He said, It's not right. The secretary made a mistake, a typo on that, and we didn't catch it before it went to Austin and got published. Okay. But both of them were black drum. Black
0: drum. Yeah. Okay.
1: But even a three? Uh, that were 15 three trout at were 15, 15 yeah okay 15 pounds and the two-thirds weighing 18 and uh and the 48 incher were black drum wow so yeah yeah stories unreal
0: unreal so um i met you obviously in in you and mr blackwood as part of ananias fishing club did you ever get a chance to fish with mike
1: uh you know, Mike and I have never fished Are you together. Kidding never me. fished together. You've known but, each other for how oh, long? Yeah. Forty, yeah, 40, 50 years. No, it's always one of those things and, and I'm I'm just as guilty of it as Mike is. And it's like, no, I, I kind of do it my way. <laughs> yeah. And you know, yeah. it's like, yeah, I don't I don't know if I wanna do that. So, you know, we we never did.
0: I I love your, your shadow boxes and and for those listening, I mean, the, I'll have to take some pictures because, really, uh, the shop doesn't know justice. And the history uh, that's surrounding us right now are just absolutely unreal. And and like we were talking about before, I mean, these baits have just tremendous personality. And, and that's the cool part about, you know, some of these old lure makers and manufacturers is that, actually not manufacturers, these are lure makers at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, just each of these baits have such charisma you know and such personality so that's cool that's crazy though that you and mike never fish together
1: no never never did i I, t- I started earlier uh two of my my big influence and an in, in introduction to the laguna madre was bill shika no kidding yeah and uh you yeah, know billy and i uh go way way back before he was a guide he worked for bayroid okay and uh, he was taking customers fishing that kind of ended up being what <laughs> some of the oil field people did they mm-hmm. get to still make the big paycheck but all they do is take customers fishing and billy kind of introduced me to uh to the uh, laguna madre and big trout mm-hmm. and to me to this day, and David Sykes will agree with me, the best big trout fisherman I have ever been with is Bill Sheikah. Okay. The guy just had a feel for where those trout were going to be, and uh, he he was so funny when he'd catch a trout. He, he ended up going bigger on his tackle and heavier on his line, so he could just crank them right in. He said, longer you've got that fish on the greater yeah. the chance of, yeah it makes it makes sense lose it. absolutely and i mean he would lock it, drag down and he fish one of early had two of rex's earliest shallow sports and uh he pull one in so many trips with him down the land cut and just slide that i mean the fish wouldn't be on more than 10 seconds <laughs> and he'd just drag it in over the side of the boat that's crazy and uh anyway i billy uh was big big influence of, of mine down in the Laguna Madre. So what's one of your most notable uh, trout fishing stories? Oh, probably one of the best stories in really I'd say it was probably the one of the best big trout trips I've ever had. Was with my dear friend Scott Murray. Hmm. Oh, and we uh, at an undisclosed spot, spot way up on the south on the. Southern end of Baffin Bay, around Laguna Salada, uh, we got into some trout over there that were all were. I think the smallest we had was 26, and it was evercast type type mm-hmm. thing. And uh, in the middle of all this, Scott said, "Let's leave. The big ones aren't here." And we had, I don't think we had <laughs> yeah. anything over 31. I mean, we had we had 13 trout. And we left in the middle of a bite to run across the bay because Scott said somebody, one of my friends, caught a 34 over there last week. So we haul ass to the north side of Baffin and uh, nothing. But in the middle of all that, we had a lot of thunder and lightning, and it just killed, uh, killed the bite. Yeah. So uh, we left them biting. <laughs> it, from 26 to 31 uh, inches. Yeah. And uh, we had uh, this one spot over there that I I just dream about this spot at times. You would throw your 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 soft bait up, not on the edge of the water, but actually up on the beach, and drag, drag it, it into the water. And the water had a big drop off right on the edge. And as soon as that 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 we called them worms, as soon as that soft plastic uh hit the water you oh. had a big trout on and she was head shaking and mm. you know so that's that's one of my better stories I've, I've had some really good trips with bill she down in the land cut what we used to call the tide runners uh, about february march when those fish we thought were coming in out of the gulf and you know they all shoulders hardly any spots and mm-hmm. i mean they were like fighting a the jackfish they were so hard hit and of course uh Dr. Stun says we, because of their tagging and being able to monitor at the East Cut uh, out of Port Mansfield, trout going and coming that are tagged said there's no indication there's any such thing as a, as a Tide Runner. Hmm. But uh, i tell you, the guides and I believe they're, I mean, no spots, big, yeah. heavy trout. It's just it's different trout yeah. coming what? in out of the Gulf, working their way north. One of the, the land co-
0: yeah, one of the things that cliff said which was actually pretty interesting to think about but he's like man back in the day when we were catching a lot of those really really just big fish uh, 32 you know anywhere between 20 31 and 33 inches he said man the the spots on them were so clear they were like dimes i mean they were, they were so distinct so vibrant i mean and and he goes man i you know, you really just don't see that today. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. and so, you know, maybe from a biologist's perspective, I mean, is that something that no, from a... I don't a,
1: know that I've seen that. I don't know that I've seen that, Chris, but... But uh, a
0: change in, like, the, the actual characteristics of a fish? Yeah.
1: Because nah, I've seen I, I them I without know. spots. I've yeah, seen, you, you know... Yeah, yeah no, uh, you know, most of that comes with, with the, uh, the the background they're in. You know, yeah. if they're in sand, sandy Areas lighter. are going to be lighter, washed yeah. out, and 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 more pronounced when they're in the grass and 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 so forth. But I don't I don't remember any big spots. Yeah, he said that some old man were just so That's clear true. and distinct. But I mean, uh, same thing I
0: shared with uh, him in his podcast was, yeah. I mean, getting around that some of that baffin rock, you always see that those trout are just typically darker. Yeah, you know, yeah. kind of share those characters, and we would see it back home in Louisiana. You get, you know, uh, later in the season you get a lot of that freshwater influence, a lot more of that tannic water. Mm -hmm. You'd see those Mm -hmm. fish. it would be super dark on the back, almost goldish. Mm -hmm. Have like a goldish Mm -hmm. kind of underbelly sheen. You know, it's that white. Super pretty fish. Super pretty. So it's interesting that, you know, those fish can kind of change their characteristics over time. But Mm -hmm. um, I want to ask, so one of my favorite podcasts, uh, I I share with this with you, is the one that you did with, you know, Mr. Billy Sandifer, um, and you did it with Coastal Advocacy Fen- Adventures with Shane Bonneau and John Blaha. And I know that he's a dear friend of yours, and obviously he's, he's since passed. But, you know, talk about a little bit of that relationship, because you talked about, you know, growing up <laughs> in, a, in a cop, and, and he was the bandito, right? So yeah, it really is like yeah. cops and robbers.
1: Oh, yeah, Billy, Billy uh, Sanford, you know, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, you, we've all heard the old saying, they don't make them like that anymore. I say about Billy, they never made one like that. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you talk—we're talking uh, Bandito. I mean, he could clean up for any crowd. Everybody loved him, but I mean, he—he he, when he came in the room, you—you—you you, you knew it. We—we uh, uh, we grew up we're exactly the same age. Uh, I think I'm three months older. We lost him a few years ago, but uh, he grew up on uh, fishing. Uh, grew up. Um, on Uh he could smell the salt water from out there and would follow it over the gulf beach and that's how he got to uh become a guide and all that stuff but he uh he he liked to fish bob hall pier because that's where all the knife fights occurred on friday night saturday night and uh, of course i was a straight air i didn't want any of that stuff <laughs> i just wanted to fish him you know so uh, we fished, uh, did the exact same things, but about 20 miles apart. And Billy and I really, we knew e- who each other was all through the years, but we really didn't connect till about, I guess, about 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, I, I, I love that man. Uh, he was my best friend. Uh, uh, just uh, most, one of the smartest men I've ever been around and uh just so knowledgeable about everything and he he, he wrote for uh yeah textile water for Magazine. for many yeah. years for uh and uh you know just just a heck of a guy miss miss him sorely but we yeah. with many many stories well so.
0: he's he's left a lasting legacy with the beach cleanup the yeah. padre island beach yeah. cleanup and obviously that that annual event and how it's grown almost globally to some extent and yeah. people coming mm-hmm. from all over the globe to to come clean up Padre. And that was my favorite story, listening to yeah. you guys. Oh, yeah. Was his ghost of Padre Island. That was oh, so yeah. amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh Eric Ozolins, uh, Oz, has taken over his uh, beach fishing charters. and okay. Of course, he's made a name for himself, you know, with his mm-hmm. shark uh, stories and, and uh, yeah. trips. Just so successful. Yeah, but, Well, I share that because,
0: I mean, again, the straight and narrow, and then obviously that being... Kind of, yeah, like you said, your best friend. And I'm looking at a picture of him in your room, and, and uh, he's flipping a
1: bird. <laughs> yeah, that was a 60th birthday gift from Santa for – oh, yeah, we 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 really kidded each other. Yeah. yeah. I I got him one time, uh, only time I ever got him. We had a – for about 25 years, I had a camp out up at the university, and kids would go out on Oso Bay, and they'd sample – nets and plankton and water quality and all that stuff and we'd stay up all night and barbecue and all that took billy out there one night <laughs> he'd, he'd always come out and just kind of sit around campfire and tell stories well uh, i had uh, uh one of my students grad students i said i want you to go over to billy and tell him you think he is your dad and she did Billy was not one easy to rattle. You could not rattle him. So they, she went over and talked to him a little bit and said, "Miss Sandover, I think you're my dad." Yeah. And he said, "I was watching the whole time." <laughs> and he said, uh, "Where did you grow up?" And she said, "Laredo." And he thought for a minute, and he said, "Was your mama a titty dancer?" <laughs> And she said, "Yeah." <laughs> and he said, "Could be." <laughs> that was that was it. Yeah. And for the rest of the yeah. night, Sam, I mean, he was playing it cool there. But the rest of the night, I mean, he was twisting his hands and trying to figure, out, "Holy, what, what? What? She gonna want money from me?" Or, you know. <laughs> yeah. And we had to tell him later on. So oh man. He 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 he's not, He wasn't one easy to get get anything over on. Yeah. But it was just classic Billy
0: and so like we were sharing you know is and know I, I was fortunate enough to have you know lunch with Lowell Odom Jay Watkins and Cliff Webb uh, and just listening to the stories that they had with each other you know and and the amount of experiences genuine experiences genuine experiences and how they used to rise each other you maybe some big fish catches and how they can kind of pick at each other, but it, they know it's with love. And that's, you know, Jay said it in his podcast and getting to witness it. You know, one of the things he said is I'll always, I'll always end the conversation with, uh, I love you, man, you know? And he goes, it you know, it definitely rattles some people, but um, he generally means it, you know? And, and so those types of relationships that you develop over the course of your fishing life, man, those are, those are lifelong. And, and getting back to the, the story, uh, or, or the pursuit of a fishery. It's way more than just the fish. We always say that is it's the relationships in the end that really earmark the course of time and the legacy you leave. And, and so get out there, you know, enjoy those times with your father, with family, with your wife, uh, kids, whatever it is, make those memories, develop those lifelong friendships because that is really what it's really truly all about the fishing in the fish itself is really truly secondary right
1: yeah yeah right oh yeah we we uh used to say uh you know fishing's always great it's just the catching that varies yes sir (laughs) yes sir and but those friendships those uh experiences you have uh just uh stay with you forever absolutely so much of what i've experienced is so vivid i can i can still smell it i can still see it i can still taste it it's so embedded it's earmarked i mean it's like seared it's there in your brain and the hair on my neck is standing up just (laughs) as i tell those tell that because it's 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 genuine Mm -hmm. it's it's the truth (laughs) <laughs> That's it. That's it.
0: Well, let's leave it there, Doc, because um, I, I don't think you finish it any any better than that. But, Doc, thank you so much for, one, inviting me into your house, um, showing me um, kind of your lifelong passion, inviting me into your life and understanding the, the from the pictures on the wall to the lures that you've collected, to the rods and reels, etc., um, thanks for, thanks for letting me be
1: here. Well, it's my pleasure, Chris. Uh, so good seeing you again. Yes, sir. I hope you can come back to one of our Ananias, uh, din- banquets. We are having another one. We were COVID. Yeah. The good thing is we're year. out of that. Right. Yeah, so yeah.
0: I know David did text me. I don't know if I'm going to be able, I think next weekend, but I, I don't know if we'll be able to. Well,
1: see. it's, we're going to have, yeah, I'd have to go back yeah. and check, but it's coming up. Yeah,
0: I do. I need to get back down there and I need to go see Mr. Blackwood as well, especially while I'm here. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, Doc, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it, sir.
1: My pleasure. Yes,
0: sir. Thank you for having me. Hey, everyone else, thanks for sticking around um, and listening to Doc McKee. Just share some of those experiences and letting us ramble on and talk about kind of Texas fishing history, if you will. But I really appreciate it. And a huge shout out to our sponsors, Down South Lures, Texas Custom Lures, Original Custom Corky, Real Sportswear, Mirror Lure, and carbon line without their support none of this would be possible so please show them some love um, but aside from that thanks so much please join us next time rate review the podcast if you can and it certainly helps we haven't done that in a while uh, but anything you can do just to kind of help continue to help share our stories with some of these amazing anglers and legends along the coast we would appreciate it but until next time guys tight lines god bless and always remember take what you need and release the rest god bless